All right, Landon. Well, now that we've played the real theme song, what's that? That that wasn't the exact theme song. You sound kind of cranky. And you're telling me that you're not actually in the room with me? Well, I guess that could only mean one thing. That we've still never missed an episode, because here I am. So why am I here all by myself playing the real theme song to lunch break? Well, it's to let you know that we're going to be doing something a little bit different this episode. It's called a nasty wasty bonus episode. Wipeout! And all the fun stuff that we like to do when we're together. Anyways, uh, what was I going to say? We talked about the Reagan administration. We talked about the Nixon administration. We talked about how to nip it in the bud. And you people keep saying nip it in the ass, the big ass. So now that that's all out of the way, what is a bonus episode? Well, some of you might not remember that we started a second podcast called Haunted by Proxy. That's right. You thought, oh, that's just for that's just for the, the season of spooks and specters, right? No, Phil Spector is once again not involved with the show. And guess what? It's scary all the time. You look out your window, there could be something out there freaky, like a dog or uh ooh, a dog. What? Sometimes these things hey, not all animals are just nice, okay? I know that's what you think, but there's a reason they call some of these teeth canines, okay? They use them to bite. They use them to bite just like my father Donald Jr. used to say, or whatever. I can't do that. It's been so long since we've talked about this guy. Anyways, cut to the point. This is a bonus episode. This is episode seven of Haunted by Proxy, which is an anthology series that we've been doing. We have exclusive access to a series of the darkest stories we've personally ever read on the internet. We can't tell you our source or how we got in touch with them, yada, 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 because that's just a whole thing we can't get into. This is episode seven. We wanted to push it out here just to remind people that we've still got this special series going on. You can subscribe to Haunted by Proxy wherever you listen to Lunch Break. And... I mean, there's not much more you can say about it. Basically, with this episode, I want you to turn the lights down. Yes, if you are driving, I want you to throw a piece of floss around the sun and pull it to the side, I guess. And look, in Bruce Almighty, he takes an invisible rope and he tosses it around the moon and makes it go bigger. And guess what he also does? He makes his wife's boobs bigger. (laughs) That's what you would do if you had all the power in the world. You'd make them bosoms bigger. (laughs) Make them bosoms blossom, okay? So um, what I want you to do, like I said, turn those lights down. And I know this is getting you in the mood for spooky stuff. And you might be saying, Joey Landon, Christmas is here. Hanukkah's here. Kwanzaa's here. It's time for celebration with fun and family. And if it's like me with my family on the holidays, I'm like, yeah, that's the scariest thing I can think of. (laughs) They're like, Joey, why are you wearing that red hat? So anyways, uh, just sit back and relax and enjoy. 
It's not going to be a full episode, I guess, because it's just going to be a story. We will have all the fun stuff next week, but just promise you will subscribe to this show because we are getting uh, we're getting pushed down in the ranks. They're saying Lunch Break is doing uh, top notch, and you know he, the thing with Haunted by Proxy is it's kind of falling by the wayside, and that's nothing to do with us. That's just how the algorithm is. And the algorithm is just so hard on us small business owners like Landon and I that run a real business called Lunch Break and a real business called Haunted by Proxy LLC. So here we go. Check it out. I'm also yelling this into my laptop speakers. And it said on the website, I got this new laptop. It says on the website, there's studio monitor, like quality studio quality microphones or something. So you tell me if this sounds like this is something you would sing into. Me, 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 me. It's also about midnight, one in the morning, and uh, my neighbors don't appreciate that I'm doing this. So enjoy the show. Landon, I send you big hugs and kisses wherever you are. I know I know you're going to get out of clink. I know you're going to get out of there, okay? Um, and by the way, everyone... Like we've said last episode, and we always say it, and we promise that we're not going to talk about it much more, but we always say it. It's something we always say in every episode. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! And now, here's Haunted by Proxy. Welcome to Haunted by Proxy. I'm Landon. And I'm Joey. This week's story is entitled, Jack. Jack was an odd man. At six feet, eight inches tall, and 195 pounds, he was taller than most folks were used to seeing, and as lanky as a teenager that still had their spots. His stature would suggest a young man who had all the hallmarks of a popular college basketball star, but his coordination was nothing short of disastrous. Pushed early in life by his eager mother, Patty, to pursue a fleeting interest in sports, he soon realized it wasn't out of his interest, but of hers. Patty had always felt a fiery desire for the alpha stature of bold, charismatic, fit athletes. Of course, she had told Jack that this had all melted away once she had met Jack's father, a quiet intellectual who knew more about a fine pair of shoes than how football was played. He was everything she hadn't been looking for and didn't know that she needed. But old habits die hard and love be damned, the top drawer of her nightstand held sacred her most esteemed bi-monthly companion, a girthy device lovingly known as the Kareem Abdul-Jaboner, which was an overt bestseller during the height of the LA Lakers in the late 70s. The frequency of use arose from Jack's father's frequency of absences. He was a traveling salesman, as Jack understood it, the last of a dying breed in the waning latter half of the 80s, with the advent of the World Wide Web looming over the crest of the next decade unbeknownst to most, save for the few technologically savvy individuals on the cutting edge who were either working on the creation of the internet or set to profit immensely from it. Jack's family, though, was part of the majority, 
living a simple Midwestern life on the shrinking earnings of their head of house. The only difference was that, as traveling sales made its decline, most blue-collar workers' trips home became longer and longer, until eventually they were home for good, finding sedentary jobs and leaving the road behind them completely. But just like so many contrary aspects of Jack's father's life, during this time his breaks at home became shorter and shorter, until he just stopped coming home altogether. His physical absence was accompanied by a financial one as well, leaving Patty with an overworked Kareem and an underprivileged son. Even if Jack had grown up with a family that better conformed to what was expected at the time, he may very well still have been an outcast. Reading this in our present year, 2028, it is well known to you, dear and constant reader, that nerds are actually pretty cool now. Something that you may discover here that will probably make you blow a hot load in your head is that back in Jack's day, nerd boys and girls were pretty much, more or less, for lack of a better term, considered scum of the earth, toilet water chugging freaks of nature who got off by having their itty bitty tidy whities rammed so far up their ass cracks that they weren't even having a satisfactory day unless they were coughing up cotton and sneezing out spandex. Try as he might, Jack was just a smart little dipshit by nature, and it seemed like he was destined to be successful no matter what this cruel planet called Earth threw his way. His time as a high schooler was split between attending classes and supporting himself and his mother financially. He worked odd job after odd job, like watering plants at a landscaping store, printing flyers or brochures on weekends at Staples, and using his derby hat to assassinate targets for an unknown kingpin. Even with all these typical teenage jobs filling his spare time, he breezed through school. While most kids were struggling with passing one language class, he had learned Spanish and Chinese simultaneously. When classmates were emerging from under the bleachers near the football field and telling their friends to smell their fingers, he was smelling book pages and could tell you if you were holding a Random House or a Penguin published book with his eyes closed. If someone had told him that the two would merge and become Penguin Random House in 2013, thus nullifying their differing sense, he would have got down on his knees, duct taped his mouth to the tailpipe of the nearest automobile, and told you to rev the parked car's engine until smog was coming out of his ass. But most importantly, when everyone in his grade was signing up for their junior year classes, he was opening an early admissions acceptance letter to Ball State University at his kitchen counter, scored dramatically by the sounds of his happily sobbing mother. Her crying wasn't so happy a week later when he knocked on her bedroom door and cracked it open to find her slamming her nightstand drawer closed and breathing heavily. He sat on the edge of her bed to tell her that he had denied the university's desires of having him as a student, that he felt it was his duty to enter the workforce full-time. I wanted you to have the life I never had, Patty pleaded with him, to go to college and make a comfortable life for yourself. You're such a smart boy, you've always wanted to go to Ball State University. What would your father think? He snarled. My father? My father? I lost my childhood because of him. He left us. Who gives a damn what he thinks about my dreams? That bastard is the reason we're in this mess. His mother gathered herself. He's not a bastard. 
you are. What? Jack cried. After all I've done for us, you deign to insult me? No, you're literally a bastard, Patty said, stone-faced. Jack wouldn't understand exactly what his mom meant until years later, when he finally cracked open a dictionary for once in his life. It wasn't long before Jack began to regret this decision. His employment became more and more sporadic as time went on, as he went from aspirations for a career in education to daily phone calls with his temp agency, listening to the same god-awful Muzak on repeat while he waited for the tired voice on the other end to tell him, Sorry, sir. We don't have any jobs in your area today. This was 1993, after all, not 2028 like it is now when you're reading this, when anyone who knows how to work a Zune or put a song on their Zanga page can get a job doing stage lighting at the local donkey show. No, in these days, a college diploma was a skeleton key, allowing you access to any job you desired. Whether that was doing graphic design for the posters of a donkey show, crafting the stage design of a donkey show, or being the manager and ringleader of your very own donkey show, the world was your oyster, and the diploma your pearl. And then there was Jack's mother. He loved her dearly. She had done her best to raise him under inauspicious conditions, but try as he might, he could not make her happy. Sleepless nights were spent wishing he had just left her there alone and gone to college and had four damn years of normalcy, somewhere where his existence would have been appreciated more than in his own home. Then, one afternoon while he was out walking to his favorite gas station, a car pulled up beside him and a woman in a striking red pantsuit emerged from the back seat making a beeline for Jack. She was maybe 20 years Jack's senior, but strikingly attractive and he suddenly felt a burning sensation of embarrassment because he was on his 18th consecutive day of unemployment this week and, in a fit of depression, had left the house in a stained button-down and faded novelty sweatpants that said, Tuesday on the butt. The humor, of course, was that someone might wear these on a Thursday or a Saturday, and the intentional irony would be good for a laugh. Jack's problem was that it actually was a Tuesday so he just looked like a dimwit who really wore joke pants on the days that were written on them. Oh, and he also smelled like shit. Nevertheless, she greeted him on the sidewalk with an air of importance that he had not felt for some time. You must be Jack, she said confidently, extending a hand towards him. He stared at her, unsure of what to make of the situation, but raised his hand cautiously to shake hers. Before he could ask anything, she spoke again. We think it's time that you join us. If you wouldn't mind getting into the car with me. I'm sorry, who are you exactly? Jack interrupted, thinking a name might jog his cloudy memory. But she offered none in return. What she said instead would from that moment on turn Jack's life tits up and twist his ass crack sideways. I represent the assets of your father. Mr. Jackson I. Box I, the mysterious founder and sole shareholder of the Jack in the Box Restaurant Corporation. Jack had to very literally pick his jaw up off the sidewalk. So if you wouldn't mind joining me, there's a lot of ground we must cover, Mr. Jack Jr. Chapter 8 Dreams from My Father's Box Jack had hardly ever left his home state, let alone move away from the town he had called home for his entire life. 
but the next few weeks were a whirlwind of changes that he had what seemed like no choice but to embrace. His belongings were packed and shipped to San Diego, California, the home of the Jack in the Box headquarters, all pro bono. A private jet was chartered for him from Columbia Regional to San Diego International, with the pilot making a point to let him know that they had to make one stop to pick up some convention guests in Palm Springs, but that he shouldn't worry because the whole flight was pro bono as well. The convention, it turned out, was more of a gathering to celebrate the fifth anniversary of U2's album, The Joshua Tree, in its namesake park. Jack spoke with many of them on the short remainder of their journey to San Diego and learned that, for the most part, they all considered themselves to be pro bono. While the conversation and new adventure was exhilarating, many questions still lingered and he felt that he still hadn't found what he was looking for. But, oh dear and consistently regular reader of mind tales, when in time the answers would come, he would forever envy the ignorance his younger self once had. Jack was given an executive position with the company faster than he could question anybody there. The situation was exactly what he had dreamed college would have been able to afford him had he attended. He felt as if he had cheated at life somehow and had ended up with a job that would give him total financial freedom for the rest of his life. It would be busy, fast-paced, and as intellectually stimulating as someone with his mind needed a job to be to feel completely content. But the complete suddenness of the role, coupled with the non-effort on his part in acquiring it, burdened him with an overwhelming sense of imposter syndrome that led him to search for answers to the questions that loomed largely overhead, like a psychopompous specter of death. As it turned out, the woman that had met with Jack those three long days ago did have a name. Jennifer Quinn had been the COO of Jack in the Box for the last six years and had been wholly trained for this momentous occasion within the company. So, like any faithful employee of Jack in the Box would do, when Jack pressed for answers about what the hell was going on, she spoke aloud the famous corporate saying, Y'all can't fib if it pertains to the jib. She kissed her fingers, goosed Jack like he had never been goosed before, and revealed to him the truth. You see, utterly obedient and unwaveringly faithful reader, Jack's father had never been a traveling salesman. In the early days of fast food expansion in the late 50s, there wasn't a boardroom of executives to dole out tasks to expendable shit-sucking underlings, so Jack Sr. oversaw everything from how well the new friars were frying all the way to surveying the country alone, looking for new locations to evangelize his buttery Jack Burger and plant the flag of the box. It just so happened that one of those lonely trips involved a chance encounter with a woman about his age as he strolled through a local farmer's market near his hotel one morning. In that nameless town, a child would be conceived. And, as it turns out, Jack Sr.'s trips home to see his wife and son were never actually trips home, but just the times when he was in town for business those weeks, able to see them in the short time he wasn't in different cities or back in San Diego. Jack wondered why they weren't allowed to just live with his father, but it seemed that every question led to more confusing secrecy. As for Jack Jr.'s German last name, Behoff und Till I come, it was simply his mother's maiden name, 
Had his last name been Box from birth, he might have realized who his father actually was years ago. Again, the questions. Why didn't his mother and father want him to know what seemed like such an arbitrary truth? His father owned a successful company and was busy? So what? Why the years of lies? Did his father have a primary family? Was he a child born of adultery? He tried to think of what to call a person born of an illegitimate relationship, but would not be able to think of one until years later when he read this book that so many people seem to talk about, called The Dictionary. Jennifer sat across from Jack, and he replayed his whole life in his head, understanding that everything he knew about his life had been a lie. A lie for reasons he still wasn't being told. He looked at Jennifer. Let me see him, he said. Excuse me? I said, let me see him. I want to see a picture of my father. I was so young when he left for good, I don't even recall his fucking face. I want to see his face. I want to see my dad. Uh, unfortunately, we... Unfortunately, what? Jack stood, seething. You people have hidden this from me for 29 years. Why? My mother said she never had any photos of him. And let me guess, you don't either? The founder of Jack in the Box never had his fucking photo taken? I'm sorry, Jack, Jennifer replied honestly. He stared at her an angry pleading behind his wild eyes. He stormed out. He didn't hear much from Jennifer in the ensuing days, understandably. He hadn't wanted anything to do with her, but he knew for some reason his father had entrusted him with his company. Regardless of the lies and deceit, he had a job to do. On May 16, 2024, Jack walked to his office through abnormally empty office spaces. He noted the quiet, Maybe another holiday, he thought absentmindedly, his thoughts clouded too much by the day's tasks. Indigenous People's Day had become a nationally recognized holiday by this point, and he wondered who else needed a special day that everyone used as an excuse to get drunk. Indigenous People's Day, he scoffed to himself. They want a seat at the table? Well, guess what? They did, at the first Thanksgiving. I mean, give me a break. Jack was becoming quite the asshole. As he entered his office, there was an explosion of confetti, noisemakers, and party horns. Happy birthday! shouted much of the Jack in the Box corporate staff as he flipped on the lights. He let out a surprised, relieved laugh when he realized what was going on. He had been so busy that he had forgotten it was his birthday. He was turning 30. Jennifer entered, wheeling in a large red cube-shaped cake and smiled at Jack. It seemed she had been hiding this secret for quite some time. For the first time in quite a while, Jack enjoyed himself. He had taken on this job with such a headstrong attitude that he hadn't stopped to realize just how fortunate he was. He had friends here, people that finally valued him for his intelligence and leadership. He thought of his mother and how they fought, but also about her reasons for keeping her secrets. She was only trying to keep him safe after all, and being overbearing did not, in and of itself, make one a bad parent. She loved Jack, and he loved her, no matter their current emotional stances. Jennifer lit a candle atop the cake as Jack finished making his rounds, meeting with the employees he regretfully had accused of taking the day off. The birthday song began, and everyone smiled as Jack blew out the candle, and the slices of cake were passed around. 
Jack stood before his employees, their attention focused solely on him, almost hungrily, even though they each held a slice of cake. If I may, Jack began, I want to thank all of you so much for being here. I won't be expecting anyone to have to write this off as their lunch hour. <laughs> you can all take your time on break today after this. Except for maybe you. He pointed at an employee with mock sternness, and everyone laughed in unison. The employee he pointed at, Mark Schulte, said, Geet! Worriedly, but then laughed along as well. Jack addressed the audience again. No, really, I, I want to thank you for much, much more. This time spent here with you has been... It's been so fulfilling in ways I can't even properly dictate. But I wanted to ask you all something, now that I have you here. Most of you knew my father. You knew I was his heir apparent to the jack-in-the-box fortune. Yet, no one came forward to say anything. Jennifer looked concerned and began to step towards Jack but he put his hand out. Tell me why you had to wait this long until I was almost 30 to let me get on with my life. We had to wait, said a familiar voice from the back. A group of employees parted and Patty walked through the crowd. Mom, said Jack, wholly surprised. He looked at everyone, smiling at him quietly the exact same way. His mother was too. Wait for what? Jack asked quietly. Patty looked at her watch. You were born May 16, 1994 at 12.52 p.m. You turn 30, exactly. No one drew a single breath, and they listened to the tiny wristwatch click away. 12.52 p.m. She looked up at her son and smiled. Now, she said. Jack felt something run down the side of his cheek and slap against his slice of cake on his plate. He looked down confusedly. What had slid off wasn't on his cheek. It was his cheek. It lay on his plate, the smashed piece of cake soaking up the blood. Blood that dripped quite freely from the open wound on his face. His hand went to the spot and he felt something perfectly smooth and solid. Bone? He looked up for help, but everyone stared at him with the same smile. It's really happening, said an employee. Everything is coming true, said another. Mom, Mom, what the fuck? Help me! Ah! A blindingly sharp pain pierced the crown of his scalp. Flesh ripped, and he felt something pointy growing out of his skull, where more blood now ran. More pieces of his face fell in chunks. The table splattered with whole pieces of flesh and blood. He screamed, falling over a chair behind him. Everyone in the room started talking excitedly, like this was cause for more celebration. The pressure in his head built to the point where it felt like it may explode. Somehow, his field of vision began to separate and widen. He could see more at once, but it hurt more than anything he had ever experienced. Then he felt his nose burst open. He collapsed to the floor as flecks of cartilage shot across the room. 
He lifted his hand to grab his face and felt a hard, sharp cone where his nose used to be. He threw up. Blood pooled around his feet. Then, all he saw was black. The light blinded Jack when he finally came to. He was tied to an office chair. He tried to protest, but it felt as if his mouth had been ripped from ear to ear, and it was excruciating to form any words with his lips. Jennifer and his mom stood above him. We just had to keep you safe. You were thrashing at everyone trying to help you up, said Jennifer. He smelled iron, felt the dry, thick blood all over his clothes, and knew that it had not been a dream. Will you be calm, she asked. He nodded slowly, and they untied him. Jack Sr. made us swear to protect you from the truth until you were old enough to understand. We needed to make sure you were truly on our side before your 30th birthday, when he went through the same ritual. Jack felt for his throbbing head, which seemed to have grown twice as large. It was all smooth. He tried to get up and stumbled. His mother helped him sit back down and she reached for something on the table. Honey, we need to show you this. She lifted a photograph of a man in a business suit. His head, a large white sphere, with a huge red smile. Two blue circles for eyes, a black cone nose, and a crown, which resembled an upside-down ice cream cone, or a dunce cap with a brim, or a theoretical conical sailboat? It was the jack-in-the-box mascot. Everyone knew who he was. Why? whispered Jack. This man has never been just our mascot, sir. He's Jack I. Box, said Jennifer. His mother then held up a mirror to him and smiled. He was your father. Jack looked into the mirror. Strings of muscle and skin stretched across his huge, round, white face. A dead eyeball hung from where a new, large blue eyeball dot was. The pain in his mouth. He could see it now. He looked just like the mascot he had grown up watching on TV. His father that he had grown up watching on TV. He had become what he always was. Jack Box the heir to the jack-in-the-box fortune. He let out a pained shriek, crying, burning tears of anger. He rose awkwardly and angrily from his chair, holding a head that weighed five times what it used to. No! He cried. His mother tried to grab for him, and he swung his head down, impaling her through the skull with his new nose. He shook his head to the side and it picked up her body, stuck on his nose, and tossed her to the side of the room. As her body experienced its final death throes, she became still. How could you? He tried to shout. Jennifer screamed for help and he turned to her and struck her with his fist. You were the chosen one. You were supposed to bring bounce to Jack in the Box, not leave it in darkness. She groaned, trying to escape his grasp. I hate you! Jack yelled. You are my CEO, Jack. I loved you, she said as he picked her body off the floor. The police would later find her body crushed against the pulverized cement underneath the 19th story window he had thrown her from. 
Inside were more than 27 massacred corpses, most found with huge puncture wounds, others busted open by a huge, dense object. But there were no leads. Jack laid low, biding his time, coming up with his own backstory. When he would emerge once more as a citizen, he played the appearance off as just being a guy on the clock making an ad for Jack in the Box. Underneath, he was just a guy from the Southwest that grew up on a cattle ranch before moving west to make it big. No one ever suspected him of having murdered 29 people, including his own mother. Which is why I bring this story to you, oh dear and beautifully unchanging reader of every single thing I've ever written. I tell you now as a warning, you see, my name is Jack I. Box, and I believe that my father is still out there somewhere. I am going to find him, and you're going to help me. Because if I don't take an even 30 souls with his life, I'll be coming after you, you bastards. The end.